Hey there guys, sorry to interrupt the episode, but I just wanted to tell you that I got my real estate license in the state of Rhode Island. So if you need to buy, sell, or need help renting a property in the state of Rhode Island, feel free to reach out. Contact me at maxwellwillett at kw.com or call me at 401-487-4477 and I'd be more than happy to help you. Thanks guys and enjoy the rest of the episode. Knowledge is Power is where you come to hear people's life experiences to learn from. So, without further ado, let's roll the intro. Stay hungry, stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Hello and welcome back to the Knowledge is Power podcast. This is your host, Max Willett. And today I'm very excited to have another great guest on. So if you could go ahead and introduce yourself, that would be great. Hi, Max. Uh, Delighted to be with you and your audience. Uh, My name is Brad Thompson. My pen name is C. Bradley Thompson. And uh, I am the executive director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism at Clemson University in South Carolina. And I also run the Lyceum Scholars Program at Clemson. Uh, And then I'm also a professor of political philosophy uh, at Clemson in the political science department. And uh, I live live here in sunny South Carolina. And uh, I I guess uh, I'm a scholar of the American founding and, and American political philosophy and intellectual history. And and, uh, I'm also uh, a proud proponent of a free society. Amen. And I first heard about you on Dave Rubin's uh, show, and I watched that, and I'm like, I said to myself, I would really love to have a conversation with that guy. You know, the things you were talking about, interesting, uh, educational, and informative. And I would love to explore some of those topics for my audience that you talked about on his shows and and a little bit more questions that I thought of personally. Um, But a a great starting point, I think, and this is something I love to ask every single one of my guests is just to hear your life story, you know, how you got to the point you are in your life now, and then we can explore those other topics. Yeah, absolutely. So I was uh, born and raised in Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada. So I'm not an American. Well, I wasn't at the time, uh, obviously an American. Um, And um, when I was seven years old, uh, I read a book called The How and Why Wonder Book of the American Revolution. And that book changed my life. And that was the moment when I realized that I was an American born in the wrong country. And that also began a kind of lifelong love affair with the United States of America. And when I was a teenager in high school, I used to I used to borrow my dad's car on weekends uh, and drive down, do long drives uh, deep into the United States, uh, go to McDonald's, buy a buy a cap, baseball cap or something, turn around and, and go home and you know, would have spent maybe, you know, 14 hours in the car just touring around uh, the northern part of the the United States. Um, I went to college at Western State College in Gunnison, Colorado, did a master's uh, at Boston College and my PhD at Brown University. 
Uh, all of that was in, in the, the 1980s. And, and uh, I got my first university teaching job at Ashland College in uh, North Central Ohio. I was there for 13 years. And I've been at Clemson ever since uh, 2005. Um, and um, it's um, it's I love living in in the United States, and I've since become a citizen. I became a citizen of the U.S. Uh, three years ago, which was one of the great highlights uh, of my life. Um, so that's that's the quick overview. Uh, I'll just add two other things. Um, um, particularly, this might be of, of interest to the younger members of your audience. When I was a young man in high, certainly in high school, and for the first couple of years in college, I was. I was not particularly uh, that interested in ideas. I was mostly just uh, an athlete um, and uh, played on a national championship football team. Uh, my first year of university in Canada before I went down to Colorado and uh, and then uh, placed third at the, uh, the Canadian Olympic trials in 1980 in the long jump. So I was really just an athlete um, and didn't have much interest uh, in ideas per se. Um, and then a funny thing happened. Um, within the course of a year or two, um, I read a couple of books, uh, two or three books actually, that that sort of changed the trajectory of my life. Um, one of them was Ayn Rand's novel, The Fountainhead. And the I'd say the other one that had a primary influence on my life was a book called Natural Right and History by uh, Leo Strauss. And at, when I read those two books almost back to back, um, that was the moment when I realized that that what I really wanted to do was to spend the rest of my adult life um, sort of engaged in the battle of ideas. Um, and and that, that essentially is what I have been doing now for the last 40 years of my life. Um, I live, eat, sleep, breathe. Um, ideas uh, and and trying to, in my small, modest way, trying to restore the United States to its former freedoms. Incredible. Yeah. And, and you've definitely done a great job, just especially educating, I think, me making an impact and hearing the things you were talking about on other platforms and shows. And uh, like I stated before, that's why I really wanted to talk to you. And as we can tell from your background, if you guys are watching, you've probably read more than those books that you have just stated <laughs> with with all those books behind you. <laughs> yeah, the, the funny thing is that this is just about half of my library. The other half is is upstairs. This is my, my home office and uh, I've probably got just as many books upstairs. So yeah, my, my whole life has been, my whole adult life has been books. And I like to describe my job as um, I, I teach old books to young people. That's what I do, um, which means, I mean, I have the best job in the world. I mean, what could be better than that? Te reading and teaching old books, great books to young people and talking about those books. And I get paid for it, which is the amazing thing. And um, and I live a great life every single day by just virtue of the fact that I get to do that every day, all day. Yeah, absolutely. And that is something that is incredibly important is learning from things that have already happened. History repeats itself. You've heard that a million times. I've heard it a million times. And it's something that I think people are forgetting, a simple statement like that. And uh, I think that's definitely something I've taken away from your teachings 
just watching you again on other platforms. So I'd love to start to get into your studies a little bit. And why don't we start off with um, John Adams, right? Something that is reoccurring. And I am very excited. I'm going to order your books on Amazon. I have them in my car. I'm going to buy them and I'm going to read them. So, uh, uh, something that I've promised to myself is I'm going to start reading a lot more. Started reading a book by Dave Ramsey. Um, I read Dune for the first time. I know that's way off topic, but it's a really, really great book and got me sort of, um, you know, threw me back into wanting to read again, was reading a book like that. But um, yeah, so let's get into sort of what was the spark that got you into wanting to study the life of John Adams? Yeah, so I was in graduate school. I was at Brown University at the time. And uh, it's kind of a funny story. I was writing a dissertation on federalist political thought, um, and it was going to be a massive study. Um, And uh, after I had been working on it for about a year, uh, a good friend of mine, a kind of mentor, uh, looked at the table of contents of this massive work and he said, no, 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 no. You're going to spend the rest of your life trying to write a doctoral dissertation. You can't do that. Get Writing a doctoral dissertation is like getting a union card. You just have to do it, get it done and get out. And so he looked at this table of content and he saw that the first chapter of this big book project that I, or dissertation project I was working on was on John Adams. And he said, that's it. That's your dissertation. You can drop the other the other nine chapters and just write on uh, a dissertation on John Adams. And so uh, I took his advice and I just immediately immersed myself in all of the secondary literature on John Adams and then eventually all of the primary source literature. And what I came to realize was, yeah, uh, it turns out John Adams, at least at the time, and this would have been... Uh, this would have been in, in the early 1990s, John Adams was probably, in many ways, I'd say the most neglected uh, of all of the founding fathers, right? There were hundreds and hundreds of books on George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton. But at that point, um, there had been very, very few books um, on John Adams. And so to you know, paraphrase Mark Twain, I seen my opportunity and I took it. And so I just threw myself into uh, John Adams. And, you know, as I said, what was supposed to have been the first chapter of this other dissertation turned into a 600 page dissertation just on John Adams. And um, and I I just through that process, I just came to have enormous uh, respect for John Adams, um, both as an intellectual uh, as uh, a revolutionary, as a politician, um, and most of all, uh, as a man. Yeah, uh, and I would I would love to sort of hear your analysis on his life story, if that's okay. Um, I'd be really interested to sort of divulge in John Adams and and sort of take what happened in his life and apply it to modern society and sort of play with it along those lines. Um, so I guess my first question to you is something that a lot of people don't realize, and I'm by no part again, uh, John Adams expert. Um, but I will say I sort of got introduced to him through the HBO show. Uh, my father introduced me to it because he had read the book that the show is based on. 
And um, yeah, so can you explain? Let's start in the beginning. I guess the sort of where the show starts, I think, would be a good starting point, which is during the Boston Massacre. Um, I don't know if you think that's a good starting point, but if there is a better starting point, I'm all for it. But <laughs> his role in that I found incredibly interesting. So if yeah, you want to elaborate yeah. on that, I think that would be a good starting point. Yeah. So so let me just first say something about the HBO series. Um, and I'm I'm embarrassed to say that I haven't seen the whole thing. Uh, I, I think I saw when it first came out, I saw the first two or three episodes, you know, and this was 20 years ago. And uh, th this much I can tell you, the first two or three episodes that I saw, I thought were fabulous. Um, and they're, they're, it's based on David McCullough's biography of John Adams, which came out a couple of years after my book on John Adams. And uh, the McCullough book is excellent. And I thought the HBO series was just wonderful, or at least the parts that I saw. Um, so on the Boston Massacre trial, so your audience will probably know that, that the Boston Massacre occurred in 1770 in, uh, in, in, in old Boston. And, you know, it was, it was a confrontation between British troops and let's just say some tough guys, uh, some, you know, bo some Boston teenage boys. Uh, and one night sort of tensions had been mounting over the course of several weeks between the so-called redcoats and and these these uh, sort of local hooligans, um, and one night it it resulted uh, in the Americans uh, this increasing tension. The Americans started throwing snowballs uh, at the British troops, and then the next thing you know, a shot is fired, uh, and then several shots are fired, and the um, and, and, and several Americans uh, were, were killed and, and injured. Um, and so the British soldiers, several of the British soldiers, most importantly, Captain Preston, were arrested. And you can well imagine how high tensions were in Boston. And the whole town had turned, obviously, against uh, uh, these British soldiers. How dare they come to Boston? How dare they set up shop? in Boston and, and uh, oppress the, the, the citizens of, of, of Boston. And so tempers were running and emotions were running very high. And of course, in Boston, they were entirely in favor of uh, the, the, the Bostonians who had been killed. But these soldiers needed to be defended in court. And when no one was willing to defend these soldiers, John Adams took on the case on the grounds that no accused person in a free society should be without, um, without defense. And so he took on the case, and uh, particularly for Captain Preston, who oversaw uh, the British soldiers involved in the Boston Massacre. And... Um, through his remarkably uh, persuasive powers, Adams was able to to get Preston um, off uh, off um, from from the conviction, and it was, of course, Adams lost a lot of favor in Boston at the time, and he was one of the favored. He was a leading revolutionary. 
So for him to defend these Boston soldiers, these, uh, uh, sorry, not Boston soldiers, but the British soldiers, was um, he was putting himself very much, he was risking his reputation with, with other Boston patriots and revolutionaries. But as with almost everything in his life, Adams put principles above uh, partisanship. And that's a recurring theme throughout his entire life. John Adams was, if nothing else, uh, a man of enormous moral integrity. He would not compromise his principles to gain favor, either with the Boston mob or with, uh, with British imperial officials. Two years before the Boston Massacre trial, um, he had been offered a plum position in um in the Brit in, in, in Britain's um admiralty courts, uh, which would have greatly uh increased his salary. Um, but again, he refused uh he refused the position, which angered the British, pleased the Americans. Uh, and then two years later, he flips it and does just the opposite. He pleases the British and angers his his co-revolutionaries. But again, the point being that Adams would not accept favors uh, and and promotion in in contrast to his moral principles. Interesting. And why do you think his story was so neglected up until you wrote about him and the, the show came into, you know, fruition? Why do you think his story was so neglected? It's a good question. I think probably for one major reason, and that is in the 20th century, um, beginning in probably the early 1930s, uh, maybe as early as the 1920s, actually going up through the 60s, uh, the founding became a kind of, uh, it, it became a battleground amongst academics, scholars. Uh, for, uh, in order to determine the, the proper intellectual legacy of the United States. And so basically what happened was American scholars, historians of the revolutionary period, depending on their own personal politics, divided into two camps. There were the Jeffersonians and the, there were the Hamiltonians. The Jeffersonians tended to be more uh, libertarian in nature and the Hamilton, Hamiltonians uh, were favored sort of by New Deal Democrats, uh, certainly in the 1930s and 40s. And so American historians were sort of fighting 20th century battles, intellectual battles, political battles, using the founding fathers. And the two that they found most helpful in that regard were uh, Jefferson and, and Alexander Hamilton. And, you know, and, and Hamilton, you know, was... The other thing is Jefferson and Hamilton essentially had political parties backing them, right? So um, they, from from the beginning, right, from the 1790s throughout certainly the 19th century, American politics continued to divide along those lines between Jeffersonians and Hamiltonians. Each camp had um, a sort of a legion of, of followers where Adams, because of who he was throughout his entire career, Adams was not a party man. 
John Adams did not have followers like in the way that Jefferson and Hamilton did. Both Jefferson and Hamilton had political parties backing them. John Adams did not have a political party backing him. John Adams was, I mean, he was the founding father who I think came closest to George Washington in that he was not a party man and he acted simply and solely on the basis of uh, principle, both moral and political principle. Interesting. And and why do you think, I mean, I know you just talked about the the parties, the, the I mean, the two-party system in the very beginning started to become an issue, which is something that we can talk about later. Uh, but what was the biggest thing holding him back? Do you think it was his more moral and core beliefs from joining a, a party and, and making, I guess, his whole political career a little bit more, I guess, easier? It was in part, but, you know, it goes back much further. So, um, you know, it, it really goes back to the, the period of the revolution. And 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 John Adams was he, he was, as I've said, he was a man of enormous integrity who would not compromise his principles mm -hmm. to, in order uh, to do what was what was right. And so if, if you go back to, say, the first Continental Congress, um, Adams uh you know, Adams was known as one of the leaders of the revolution uh, in the Continental Congress. He was probably its most vocal spokesman. Um, and that won him no friends. I mean, it won him some friends, but not all friends. And uh, and then when he was a diplomat in Europe during the 1780s, I mean, again, he he went up against the the. He, he went up against the policies of various political parties or factions back at home. So uh, he, you know, he, 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 he was willing, for instance, to go up against Benjamin Franklin um, during the 1780s when both of them were, were in, were in uh, Europe at the time as, as diplomats. And, and Adams was just totally dedicated to the American cause. Whereas Franklin was much, much more of a compromiser uh, and was much, much more willing to play the game of diplomacy than was John Adams. Adams used what was sometimes called um, uh, militia diplomacy. I mean, he was constantly just sort of going after uh, the, the enemies of the United States and he was always moving around. Uh, he never had stable support anywhere, but he would go wherever he thought he could gain something for the United States. Um, so he was he was always on the move and always acting in the best interest of the United States. And that continued throughout his entire life. Now, let's let let me mention one last thing. And this is the, the most controversial part of Adams's career. It was went during his presidency, the close to the end of his presidency. And he ultimately, in the end, signed the Alien and Sedition Act, which he was not really in favor of, um, or at least he was deeply skeptical about uh, during during this time. But you also have to understand that the, it turns out that and it's not so much the Alien Act, it was more of the Sedition Act uh, that has that caused so much controversy at the time and since then. And and but what most people don't realize is that 
the Sedition Act that Adams signed was one sort of imposed on him by uh, a Federalist Congress. I mean, his party, which controlled Congress at the time, sort of imposed this on him. Is all he did was sign it. He didn't. He didn't actively support it. That's one. Two. It turns out the Sedition Law of 1798 um, actually liberalized existing sedition law in the, in the United States, and it allowed for the first time truth as a defense. The problem is that, it, it, again, once again in Adams's career, it got caught up in the party um, feuds between the Federalists and the Republicans, and he got caught in the middle uh, of it. And, and of course, in the 20th century, uh, where we have much, much more liberalized sedition laws than we did in the 18th century, uh, Adams was viewed by, by historians beginning in the 1930s as a great advocate of sedition. Um, and of course, uh, the liberal Democrats in Congress and around the United States from the 1930s on were trying to liberalize sedition laws uh, so that socialists would have um, uh, more freedom to speak in the United States. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting how things from so long ago came into play in the 1930s, which, you know, heavily impacted that. That's really interesting to hear that. Um, and that's something I still would like to tie into, you know, more modern times uh, throughout our conversation here. Um, but uh, my next question for you is, um, through your extensive investigation in the life of John Adams, what is the most valuable lesson or insight that you have taken from his contributions to uh, the American political thought and practice? Yeah, I think it, it, it can be summed up pretty quickly and simply, and that is um, act on principle. Uh, there was no founding father uh not not a single one who I think could match John Adams's integrity. Uh, Adams would not compromise in order to gain personally. And Adams also attempted to unite theory and practice. So, you know, Adams was one of the great leading advocates uh, intellectually um, and politically of, of the revolution. And he dedicated his life, his entire life to the cause of first of the American Revolution and then of America. I mean, one of, the, one of the extraordinary things that's not known about Adams is that between 1774 and 1789, he was away from his family for almost the entirety of that time. I mean, it's extraordinary. During a 10-year period from 17, uh, I think 74 to about 84, 85, he was, he was at home for only nine months of a 10 year period. And he had a wife and, and he had, uh, he had four children. I mean, I mean, it's just extraordinary. Um, his devotion to the American cause. Now, of course he could not have done it without the support of his remarkable wife, Abigail. I mean, mm -hmm. how many other wives would permit their husband to be away for 10 years minus nine months. I mean, it's 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 extraordinary. Yeah. But Abigail was as dedicated to the American cause as was John Adams. 
And I mean, it, it's truly, I think, one of the great marriages in American history. In fact, I can think of no other marriage that is as impressive as was the Adams marriage. Yeah, that's something else I would very much like to talk about more is Abigail Adams. Uh, you know, that's something I think I hate to base my knowledge off of a TV show, but I think that that's something the show focused on a lot was Abigail Adams and how much she supported John Adams. And they both realized that that this was something more than just their lives there. They were accomplishing something, creating something that would last on for generations, you know, in their hopes. And it has. And and obviously now we sit here and talk about their accomplishments. Um, but yeah. And something else I would like to uh, sort of dive into is, you know, that idea of applying things that he practiced and in, into today's society. So uh what in your view is the most crucial guiding principle that we can draw from his work and apply to modern society to help us with the, uh, you know, a lot of issues that we have going on right now in the modern day America to help preserve, I guess, our democratic ideas and institutions? What are some ideas that he had that we can apply to today's society? Yeah, so I, I would say two things, um, one of which I've already talked about, and that is the importance of uh, developing a, a strong moral character. Um, in many ways, I think we, we live in a, in, a, in a culture today in, in which we don't practice the arts of, 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 of character, of moral character. And for Adams and his generation, there could be no separation between moral character and right action um, and right political principles. So, you know, part of what I'm trying to do right now at Clemson University through the Lyceum Scholars Program that we run is I'm trying to um, sort of educate a new generation of young men and women who will take the idea of moral character seriously. Because as the founding fathers knew, John Adams in particular, you can't have a moral, you can't have a free society made up of moral reprobates. Um, and, and I think in many ways, uh, the moral character, uh, the moral way of life of this country uh, has been declining precipitously uh, over the course of the last 40 or 50 years. So the thing that I have learned probably most importantly from Adams is the, necess is the necessity of each and every one of us um, developing uh, and ultimately defending our moral character. Everything begins with one's own moral character. And sometimes I get so irritated and bored with young people who think they want to change the world, right? I hear this all the time from young people. I want to change the world. Oh, really? You want to change the world? You're 21 and you have the hubris to think you're going to change the world? Come on, let's get serious. Here's an idea. Why don't you start just with yourself? Before you think you can change the lives 
of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions uh, of other people, why don't you start with yourself first? And that's what John Adams did. John Adams, uh, as a young man, uh, uh, attempted to achieve a kind of moral perfection. And um, and, and he uh, and he worked very hard at it during his years as a as a as a teenager and then in his during his time in college and, and thereafter. So that's that's number one, I would say. But also connected with it is an idea that Adams developed in an essay that he wrote in 1765 called the, a dissertation on the canon and feudal law. And in that essay, Adams um, wrote at, at some length about a concept which has largely been forgotten today. And that is the spirit, he called it the spirit of liberty. Um, and you could say that in many ways, uh, the, we live today with a spirit of moral slavishness and a spirit of um, uh, political slavishness. But this American spirit of liberty uh, is, is a spirit which says, uh, I too am a man. I too can have the capacity to govern myself without, without government telling me how to live my life. And that the single most important thing that all of us have in our lives, um, which makes everything possible, is our liberty. Without liberty, we can't, we can't design, we, we can't make our lives the best that we can make them. We can't make them what we would want them to be. Um, and this spiritedness is, is deeply wrought into the moral constitution uh, of the individual. And I think in many ways, we have lost that spirit, that spirit of liberty. I mean, think about the Stamp Act, right, which, is, which was passed by the British Parliament in 1765. The Stamp Act was, you know, it, it was not actually a particularly high tax. In fact, it was it was kind of a minimal tax. Um, and up until that point, the Americans paid almost nothing in taxes, certainly to the British. Well, they, they did pay nothing in taxes to the British government. But with the passage of the Stamp Act in 1765, the Americans immediately ignited uh, resistance and opposition to the Stamp Act. Now, if you think about it in the context of today, the Stamp Act is a pittance compared to the taxes that, that we pay today. And we just take it, right? Mm -hmm. If you think, right, you know, many, many um, middle-class Americans today, you know, pay somewhere. If you add up all the taxes that we pay, if you add up federal income tax, state income tax, local property taxes, sales and tax. all kinds of sales taxes, right? You know, it turns out most Americans you know, could be paying upwards of 50% uh, of their income in taxes. Now, what is that? If you think about it, that means, think about it in these terms. That means from January 1st until June 30th, 100% of your, your earnings goes to the government. And then on July 1st to December 31st, you get to keep 100% of your earnings. So the question is, what is your what is your moral political status between January 1st and June 30th? If you give 100% of your earnings. Right. 
it means you're a slave. That's the technical definition of a slave, right? Mm -hmm. And it means from July 1st until December 31st, you're free. And what do we do about it? Nothing. <laughs> exactly. We, we, we do nothing. Yeah. Which is why I said a few minutes ago, right, that the reigning moral political ethos of our time is a kind of spirit, not a spirit of liberty, but a spirit of slavishness. Uh, we've turned over our right to self-govern ourselves to bureaucrats in state capital, in all 50 state capitals and in Washington, D.C. So the thing that impresses me most about Adams and the revolutionary generation is their spirit of liberty. I mean, mm. this spirit of liberty is like a tripwire. It's like it's like a psychological tripwire. And if you just barely even touch the tripwire, it triggers a response. Right? And today there is no tripwire. Yeah. So something that's resonated with me i'm not i'm 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 sure john adams said something you know close to this was um in the show again the reason why he fights the reason why he uh travels away from his family for so long the reason why he does what he does is so that his children can study mathematics and their children can study the arts and history and things like that and I think we've gotten to a very, very drawn out proportion of the ending of that statement. And we've grown almost fat in our, our issues that really, when you think about it, are useless issues, things that don't really matter, right? Things that have just started to stack up over all these years and uh, we've gotten spoiled. Right. And um, that quote from the show really resonated with me because it's became true today, you know, right. but not in the way I think his mind thought of, you know, because he didn't realize there's no other way to describe what's going on right now other than craziness. I think uh, it's, a, it's a simple word, but it's accurate. Um and you hit it nail on the head when when you were talking about that. And and it comes down to something as simple as moral belief. You know, it's something that a lot of people are lacking today. And um, yeah, I just wanted to talk about that quote and how it um, resonated with me. But um, yeah. So is there is there something that you know, is that something that you have applied heavily to your life is those teachings from John Adams? Is that something that you have, have heavily benefited from? Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I would, I, and, and those two ideas in particular, that namely one, the importance, uh, indeed the necessity of moral character in, in one's life. So this was not John Adams line. It's, you know, there's a, a, a movie, a Spike Lee movie by this title which is do the right thing, right? And and but I think John Adams and the other founders um, they understood that that concept implicitly. And and I think 
it's important for all of us today. And I've certainly in my life tried to live by that maxim, which is do the right thing and do the right thing for selfish reasons. The fact of the matter is you get one life, you get one life and it's your life. It's not somebody else's life. And I do not recognize the right of anybody else to anything of my life. And I'm willing to defend, uh, to defend to the death, my, my, my right to my life and all the things that go with it, namely the liberty to, um, to live out my values, the freedom to, to achieve all the things in my life that I want to achieve, which includes a lot of other people, right? It's not just material acquisition. In fact, material acquisition are the things that are probably least important to me uh, in my life. What's most important to me, and this goes to the, you know, the Adams quotation, you know, obviously would be uh, my wife, my kids, I'm soon to be a grandfather, my grand, my soon to be grandchildren. And, and, and like Adams, right? I fight here now today, not simply and only for my freedom, but for, for the freedom uh, of my children and of my grandchildren and, and those to follow and, and to fight for the freedoms of the people that I love, my friends, my colleagues, um, those people in this country who still retain that sense of the spirit of liberty. I mean, one of the one of the really difficult things for me, I mean, if it, as someone who has spent his entire life since the time he was seven years old, studying America, loving America, watching what has happened to this country over the course uh, of the, uh, of the, just the last few years, right, has been ex extraordinarily, to put it diplomatically, disappointing. But what does that mean? Does that mean I crawl back into my hole? Um, no, it means I double down and and double down uh, in order to fight for what is true, right, and good. Where do you think it all went wrong? Do you think there was a turning point where we can point to and say, well, that's where we made the mistake? Well, I would say there are, I mean, there are several turning points. Um, so in many ways, at the deepest level, it all begins in the post-Civil War period when a tsunami of very bad ideas from Europe crashed onto America, American shores. Uh, pr principally ideas from Germany and more particularly uh, the ideas of uh, certain 19th, 18th, late 18th, 19th century German philosophers such as Immanuel Kant, uh, Hegel, uh, maybe most importantly Marx. And those ideas eventually, you know, because ideas have consequences and those ideas came to dominate over the course of let's say from 18, let's say from 1870 to 1930, you know, over, over that 60 year period, those ideas came, came to dominate American higher education. And then it's had a slow um, trickle down effect into America's government school system since the night, approximately the 1930s. 
And, uh, you know, and politically, a, a major turning point was, of course, the 1930s and the introduction of the so-called New Deal, uh, which was just socialism light. Um, and, and politically, we've been sort of drifting that way, um, sort of in a, on a steady course, um, really for the last, um, you know, 80, 90, 100 years. Uh, and but, you know, that movement has, has I think, greatly accelerated just in the last um, in the last uh, four or five years. And mm. you see it. I think you saw it most visibly uh, through the lockdowns, the covid lockdowns. Right. Um, you know, what's interesting is when I was a junior in high school, I wrote an essay on FDR and how to be honest, a lot of his uh, the, the big things that were part of that deal, right, were more harmful in the long run than a lot of people realized, you know, having I mean, zip codes really wasn't a thing until then. Like people don't realize that and uh, income tax and a lot of things to help pull people out of the Great Depression. But in reality, I mean, like we've already talked about half of your income is gone and that's really where the starting point was uh i think and uh how a lot of his systems and 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 things that he put into practice when he was president was harmful and it was a big upset in my class cuz my teacher was a huge fdr fan but i applauded him because he passed me and he actually thought it was an interesting paper so um wasn't the best paper i think i've ever written but uh, it was something that I still think about to this day, and I uh, wish I still had it. It's lost somewhere in the Google Drive of past, but um, <laughs> I wish I printed it out and kept it. But um, yeah, so that's something that I find remarkably interesting, as a lot of people don't realize. That's I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's like you said, during the 1930s, during the Great Depression is when it really came into fruition. Yeah, so that's the, the 1930s and the New Deal is when the regulatory welfare state was institutionalized uh, in in this country, um, and and it's just been, you know, it's just been a slow working out uh, of those ideas uh, over the course, well, of the last you know 90 years. And 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 we're really only just now starting to see the the the, the full fruition uh, of those policies that go back to the 1930s and the ideas that go back to the 1870s and, and 1880s, because mm -hmm. all of those ideas um, were completely anathema to the principles of the founders um, uh, enlightenment principles and and. And so, you know, what I'm trying to do in both uh, in my academic writings, and then let me give a plug to your audience for my Substack. So I write um, at uh, the Redneck Intellectual um, on Substack. And um, I, I last year, I wrote a series of about 20 essays uh, on the government school system and calling for its abolition. And the last uh, eight months or so, I've been writing a series, a new series of essays um, 
on, on the principles of the American founding, or what I call the laissez-faire constitution, and how the laissez-faire constitution, um, how, how it worked out in practice and created the greatest nation in the history of the world. Yeah. Anything you want to plug, you can plug it. I don't care. And, and, and you got, you have several books as well, right? If you want to name those books off, that would be great. Go ahead and name the books off. I would say uh, the three principal books that I would mention are first, uh, the John Adams book published in mm -hmm. 1998, that, that is uh, John Adams and the spirit of Liberty. And then in 2010, I published a book titled Neoconservatism, an obituary for an idea. And then most recently, um, uh, I published America's Revolutionary Mind, which is, which is my principal work uh, on, on the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. the, subtitle, uh, the subtitle of America's Revolutionary Mind is A Moral History of the American Revolution and the Declaration that Defined It. Interesting. Yes. And definitely something I need to read. Um, so I want to backtrack back to John Adams a little bit and talk about something that really interests me. And in previous discussions, you've talked about the historical significance of July 1st, right? And not July 4th, which obviously is Independence Day. Can you elaborate on what makes that date so important? Right. So July 1st was the day that the Continental Congress took up the issue of independence. So, um, you know, it's probably true to say that through 1774 and 1775, there, well, there certainly wasn't a majority of, of Americans who were prepared to declare independence from Great Britain. John Adams once remarked, uh, in, during this period, 74, 75, and into early 1776, that a third of Americans were opposed to independence and that would they would have been the loyalists. A third were sitting on the fence and a third were in favor of independence. And Adams, of course, along with his cousin Sam and George Washington were some of the earliest proponents of, of independence. And so, but things were we're quickly moving to a crisis. Um, in late 1775, uh, uh, King George III signs the so-called Prohibitory Act, which took the Americans out of his protection, which was in a sense a kind of de facto independence. And, um, and then in January of 1776, Tom Paine publishes Common Sense, which radicalized, and it was America's first bestseller, and it radicalized the American population. And now you start getting something close to a majority of Americans who are in favor of independence. And then between January and, and the end of June of 1776, there's the Americans are slowly, month after month, moving psychologically uh, toward independence because you have to remember these these Americans were uh, they were they had been loyal subjects uh, of the British Empire and and um, and were they they were in effect monarchists they 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 pledged their fealty to 
British kings throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. So psychologically, it was very hard for the Americans to get to the point where they could finally, you know, break all of the, not just the political ties, but maybe more importantly, the psychological ties to the British monarchy and, and to, uh, and, and to British culture. Um, by June, by May, let's say by May, uh, there's now a strong movement in the Continental Congress in favor of independence. They're starting to move toward it. It's picking up steam uh, uh, in June. And then finally, uh, the day arrives, July 1st, 1776. And this was the day when the Americans um, and their representatives in the Continental Congress were to debate the great subject, which is um, do we declare our independence or do we continue trying to reconcile ourselves with Great Britain? The first person to speak spoke um, in defense of reconciliation, and that was John Dickinson, one of America's great revolutionaries and founding fathers, but Dickinson was not prepared uh, to declare independence. And he spoke for several hours and gave a very uh, well-reasoned um, but passionate speech in favor of reconciliation. And when Dickinson sat down, the room went quiet. There was a hush over Independence Hall. And everybody's now looking around the room, wondering who will, who will be the man to stand up and argue for independence, knowing that the man who stands up will be the target of British hatred and will be the first person uh, accused of treason, which means death by hanging. And everybody's looking around the room, who's gonna stand up? And then eventually all the eyes fell on the one man whom they knew would stand up because he had been arguing for independence and because they knew he was fearless and a man of, of extraordinary moral character and integrity. And of course, that man was John Adams. And Adams stood up and he made a passionate, lawyerly-like argument uh, in favor of independence. Um, and when he finally finished, it was done. He had won the day. He had convinced his colleagues uh, that the only moral position they could take at this point was to declare independence. Um, Thomas Jefferson referred to Adams's speech. Uh, he said uh, that he was our colossus on the floor. Uh, Adams was also described because of that speech as the Atlas of Independence. And um, and uh, the next day, uh, they 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 voted, and then two days later, uh, signed the Declaration of Independence. That gave me chills. Story. That that gave me chills <laughs> listening to that. Patriotic, an amazing story, um, and definitely over the past few months, John Adams has definitely became a person of more interest to me, which is ultimately what brought me to you and, and hearing your, your, your talks about him. And, um, yeah, I, I I've had an absolutely amazing time 
talking to you. This has been incredible. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and talking about your life and John Adams. And um, yeah, thank you. Max, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure uh, to talk to you today. Yeah. And I do have a last question before we wrap it up. And this is something that I ask every single one of my guests. And if you were to leave one piece of advice to my listeners, what would that piece of advice be? Get right with yourself. Great. Yes. All right. That's it. Yeah. Get get right. Get right with yourself, which is to say, you know, um, begin, begin a course of self-examination and uh, figure out what your moral principles are and figure out how you are going to live your life according to those moral principles. That I think is the single most important thing that any of us can do is to quote, as I've said, get right with yourself. Uh, And then to to quote the line I've already quoted from Spike Lee, do the right thing, right? And be fearless, be fearless in the face of opposition. Uh, Because you will, because if you are a man or a woman of principle and of moral character, you will face opposition your whole life. Um, but face it uh, as a happy as a happy warrior, and uh, and and don't give up your principles. It's they are the your 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 moral principles are the single most important possession that you own. And in the same way that you wouldn't give up, uh, you wouldn't give up uh, your wallet or your car to a thief. Do not give up your moral principles. Amazing advice. And uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, And I will make sure to apply that to my life. And um, yeah, I was looking forward to this conversation for a very long time. We had a little bit of a back and forth, but I'm so glad that we got to set it up. I've definitely learned a lot in this conversation and I hope my listeners have too. And uh, thank you again for coming on. Um, And uh, thank you all for listening to the Knowledge is Power podcast. And make sure to go check out Professor Thompson's books um, where if you want me to link them, is there a website or would you like me to link them to Amazon? Uh, link them to Amazon. OK. And then I would really appreciate it if you could also link to my Substack, the Red yes. Neck Intellectual. Absolutely. I'll put that in the uh, description of the podcast. And um, yeah, this is awesome. This is one of the best conversations I think I've ever had. (laughs) Thank you. I learned a lot and I love talking about the United States of America. So USA. (laughs) And tying back to the beginning, one of the greatest lines I think I've ever heard is I was an American born in the wrong country (laughs) when you talked about in the beginning of the podcast. So thank you so much. And um, hopefully I'll get to talk to you again soon. I'd like that, Max. Thank you. 